Hey, Michaela. Hi. Today we're going to do something a little different on the podcast, and we're going to discuss uh, books or podcasts or ideas or anything of that nature that we've been exposed to recently, that we've read, and that we've particularly enjoyed. Something a little bit different from our usual material, although I'm sure uh, undoubtedly it'll be quite related. So I'm curious, what have you been reading, listening to, and enjoying? <laughs> um, well, I, I think the first thing to be said is that um, because so much of the things that are happening are happening on Zoom and on the computer, I've kind of abandoned my Kindle and gone back to reading paper books, which I used to love and and always did. And then, of course, it became so much more convenient to load everything onto one device and be able to travel with it. But now that we're not really traveling still, I've gone back to paper books. And that's been really, really nice because it also means I can read before I go to bed without getting that light exposure, which we'll talk about in a second, the light exposure. So that's the first thing to be said is that I'm really enjoying getting paper books again. I also enjoy the physical books. Of course, I still love my Kindle, I must say, but I also enjoy the physical books. There's something about the tactile nature, the physical nature of it. Also, it's more spatial. Uh, some people say that they find the Kindle easy for reference, you know, taking notes, highlighting and so on. Uh, but I just can't get my head around the spatial component in an e-reader. Um, you know, whereabouts in the book is it? Somehow, um, when, I'm, when I'm reading a book and I'm remembering information, or even if, you know, plot points or whatever the case may be, something about the, uh, the physical side of it uh, is relevant for me. Yes, I feel the same. And I mean, I used to be such an avid collector of books and I had, you know, so, so many. Um, but then, of course, post uh, fire, you know, I never really replenished my library and still haven't quite, I mean, not even remotely. Um, so, uh, you know, the books that I do um, remember that I had that were just reference books I do have on the Kindle, but new things and things that I really, really loved, I'm trying to get back in paperback, which yeah. is quite uh, nice. Have you always been a reader? I mean, I was wondering, actually, your English, of course, English is not your first language and your English is very, very good indeed. And I know for a fact that your vocabulary, for instance, exceeds many native speakers. Um, you know, we've known each other many years and uh, I've heard you use all kinds of very advanced okay. vocabulary. Well, it's true that a lot of native speakers don't use. And uh, so that's quite interesting. And sometimes I've said to you, do you know what that word means, actually? And then you give a good definition. And I, and I think it's it's actually unusual for native speakers to be able to do that. So that's always impressed me. I wondered if uh, you'd acquired that through reading. Um, mm. I, I, so anyway, in your, in your, when you're a child, I expect if you read it all, it was in, in German. Uh, did you, have you always been a reader? And uh, did that contribute somewhat to your acquisition of advanced English? Well, I've always been a reader and I've been always uh, just really into books. And when uh, I was a kid, I would spend my allowance on books. So I would save up all my allowance. And then um, I, you know, I lived in Salzburg, which is close to the German border. And um, ever so often, my parents would go to Munich, which was a much, much bigger city than Salzburg. And there used to be this department store where on the in the basement, there were just books and so I would hoard my money and uh, then take it with me and uh, just buy as many books as I could afford and then read all the way 
back already in the car. And anytime we went on a trip, that was just the perfect uh, way to kind of get a bit more reading in. And I, of course, did the thing that uh, kids at least used to do, which is I had a flashlight hidden in the bed. And when I had to go to bed, I would, you know, turn the light off and then read some more with the flashlight under the covers. And, you know, sometimes uh, not get nearly enough sleep <laughs> if the book was particularly good. So I've always loved books. And uh, then uh, in some real wonderful, um, uh, you know, set of circumstances, when I moved from Dusseldorf, where I lived for a while, to Hamburg, um, the, you know, a lot of the apartment buildings there have storefronts on the bottom, as it is in most of Europe, and then apartments on the top. And the apartment I rented was above a bookstore. And it was just incredible, right? And so I started going in there every Friday and I would buy two or three books every Friday and then read them till the next Friday. And, you know, that way amass an enormous amount of reading and also enormous amount of books. And it was just the best thing, uh, you know, to have like access to a proper bookstore uh, in, in not only walking distance, but I just had to go down the steps out the door and to the right into the bookstore. What were you reading at that age? How old um, were you actually in Dusseldorf? What was that, 19, 20 or so? Oh, no, I was a bit, yeah, 21, 22. So, you know, I read a lot of um, um, actual German and Austrian writers. Uh, Hermann Hesse was definitely something that I read and reread. Um, I know you just got uh, Hermann Hesse. Uh, but also just, you know, con uh, con both contemporary and like the classic Austrian and German writers. Um, I also, back then... Uh, they started having uh, these, uh, there were whole editions, like whole, whole publishers that only published kind of esoteric material. All those books were light blue. It was, I don't know why they were all light blue, um, but, uh, you know, you could have everything from Druid history to um, astral projection and, you know, like all of that stuff was all available by this one imprint. And so I made my way through, you know, kind of the whole esoteric library that was available. And that was really quite um, cool because, in that particular imprint, they had everything. They had Tibetan, they had Indian, they had Celtic, they had Sufi, that, you know, when you name it, they had it. So um, I did a lot of that, um, you know, just kind of sordid esoteric stuff. Um, and um, I just also, you know, read quite a bit of um, German translations of English literature, which is kind of hilarious when I think about it now. But of course, I read in German back then, mostly. Um, and then... Well, your English wasn't that great, right? Even when you arrived in the US, your English wasn't that great. Yeah, I mean, my English was the English you learn in school and then, you know, conversationally um, apply yourself when you go to England or when you speak with people who are you know, English speakers. So I had a, a good enough command of the English language that I could get around and express myself and have proper conversations and everything. But by no means did I have, you know, vast vocabulary. But then, of course, when I came to the States um, and even a little bit before I started reading in English and in the beginning, what I would do is... Um, 
I actually did this even in German. Uh, you know, this is one of the tricks, even in German that that I acquired. I don't know why or how or who told me, but my absolute favorite gift from my dad ever, I think, was uh, a massive encyclopedia when I was 10. It was a kid's encyclopedia, but it was was this massive book and it had like little photos and, you know, maps and things like that. And so anytime I didn't know something, I would look it up in there. This was, of course, pre Googling everything, right? But so, and I, I eventually had read that entire thing from the beginning to the end, you know, all the countries and, you know, how many people live there and all of that stuff. And I was just so into um, where words came from and, and all of that. I was also a total Latin nerd. Uh, meaning I studied Latin in school and I taught myself to re to essentially speak Latin as if it was a living language and uh, really, really loved that, read a lot of, translated a lot of Latin books and stuff. So I've always had a thing for it. So when I started learning English to end my long wind, winding uh, explanation here, I would, anytime I wouldn't know a word, I would immediately look it up. And uh, that you know, was a bit tedious, but in a fairly short period of time, I had a really vast vocabulary, which helped um, because I think English is, to me, it's a very interesting language because it has a lot of, there's a lot of precision in a certain way that German doesn't, German it has a, a different kind of precision. It's like, you need a lot more words to describe something, let's put it this way. Um, English is there's something very to the point, and I've re always really enjoyed getting more vocabulary and and kind of ways to say things that are totally on the on the spot. English certainly has many um, uh, words that can mean the same thing or roughly the same thing, but with with important implications and shades of meaning. And I think the way you communicate, the way you use English really takes full advantage of that. Very sophisticated use of the implication of language. Because sometimes I'll ask you, because I'm interested in why you choose certain words, especially given that, you know, it's not, you know, not I mean, not, uh, not constantly thinking about that, but sometimes I say, why this word in particular? Uh, and I wonder if you mean to include all of its implications. And uh, without fail, I think, uh, you've always meant the implications of the word, the subtle implications of the word. Uh, and I think that's, that's rather remarkable. Um, and you think, so you think that's got something to do with your, the etym your interest in etymology. You want to know where the word comes from, what's its root, something maybe to do with Latin or Greek very often, isn't it? Um, you think there's some kind of sense in which that is helping you get those shades or, I mean, you must have had vast amounts of comprehensible input to pick that context up. Yeah, I mean, I used to before, you know, before it got as busy as it's gotten nowadays, I used to always read two, three books a week and, you know, sometimes more. And then, of course, long plane rides were dedicated to just reading, 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 reading. And uh, but it's it's not just that. And that's why I think I also like reading so much, you know, well written, like well written books or just, it's like music to me. And before, you know, before I lost all my books, I had go-to books that evoked a certain kind of a feeling in my body or in my emotions. And I would read that book over and over and over. I would know the exact 
chapter that I would want to read to evoke a certain kind of a feeling or to evoke a certain kind of a memory or a certain kind of an exploration. And so, you know, the same way that you use can that you can use music to do that. I always used to do that and still do uh, with books where it doesn't matter how often I've read it. It's still as good as the first time, either because the language is just so good or the sentiment is so evocative or a combination thereof. And uh, when I get to read something that's really well written, it's it's hard to describe, but it's like this totally, you know, amazing, explosive opening kind of a feeling. Um, that's that's like no other really. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And do you find that to be similar with fiction and nonfiction? I mean, you must have a very vivid imagination. You, I mean, you're very <laughs> visual, aren't you? The way yeah. you um, decorate, for example, your your house and everything. You're, you're extremely visual. I mean, does that transfer to your imagination as well? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's really quite um, often it happened that I would read something and really loved a book, for instance, and then they made that book into a movie. And without fail, that would just totally upset me because the visuals in the book or the people in the book weren't the people that I imagined when reading the book, right? And so it often just totally fell short of my imagination or the way I visualized things in, in movies. So I no longer even bother looking at movies of books that I really, really loved because it, it just never really... Uh, you know, compares in some yeah. way. So, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, you mentioned uh, Herman Hesse. And as you pointed out, I just got this uh, literally just moments before we uh, began recording here. Um, this dual language, uh, of course, in the original German and in English version of Siddhartha, which I'm going to enjoy mm -hmm. going through. You know, as, as you know, um, I have uh, sufficient German to embarrass myself in front of German speakers, uh, but uh, I like to do it. Um, so I'm curious about that book. You know, you yeah. mentioned when I, I took it out of the, the, the post, post package. I mean, I literally opened the thing yeah. uh, when we were on Zoom before we started. Um, you said it was quite impactful for you. I'm, I'm, wondering, um, uh, I'm wondering about that. And mm -hmm. also, you know, what, what other kind of authors do you remember were in that occult, that light blue occult section? I presume there must have been a a healthy dose of Steiner, but uh, maybe not. Yeah, it was Steiner. It would definitely was a healthy dose of Steiner, but the, but also um, there was a, a lot of you know things like uh, I was really into um, near death experiences or reincarnation. People remembering their reincarnations and things like Raymond Moody or you know like all those people who kind of went into what happens after death or what happens when you come back from, from a near death experience or, um, you know, all these, there were like a whole bunch of authors in that time in England, actually, who, which was kind of interesting because you would think, you know, that would be, there would be lots of Indian accounts of that, but it's actually a lot of English authors talking about kids remembering villages they had been in in their previous lives and things like that. I was totally fascinated by that um, and, you know, read a lot about that and then also got very heavily into regression hypnosis. And um, I, I had a very deep um, appreciation. And this goes back to language, right? I was really into Milton Erickson and 
the way he used language. That's when I started actually reading English um, because it, it, I mean, it was even translated really, really well. Whoever translated that book, you know, my voice will go with you wherever. I don't know what it's called in, in English, actually. <laughs> you know? um, that that book, even in, in the German translation, was so... The, the way he used language to invoke things in the subconscious and to give metaphors without pushing people or or forcing them to have recall or experiences that that was amazingly um you know impactful and then there was also a whole bunch of things in that library that were steiner related in the sense that um we you know it was like about um how to connect with the natural world and how to actually work with the natural world in the in the realms of not only the esoteric but also in the practical things like using the moon phases when you sow seeds what colors to put seeds on when you put them out and you know things of that nature that i was just always really interested in where herb lore and folklore and um the esoteric kind of myth that that was always kind of my sweet spot mm -hmm. which by the way is one of the books i'm reading at the moment is related to that which is kind of a new um new version of those things that i kind of came up with but i want to talk about hermann hesse for a second since you have him there um in the sense that my dad gave me um, a kind of a collection, you know, like how you could buy, I think that still exists, like these sets of books, they all look the same and they're like a, an author's collected works. And so he gave me the collected works of Hermann Hesse, probably for my 11th or 12th birthday, right around the same time I read The Mists of Avalon and was so, you know, excited about it. Um, and And I made my way through Hesse, at that time and most of it was kind of like mm, yeah okay you know it was it was a bit young and then i think the first book of that entire collection that really i was a bit young you know i was also not a very uh sophisticated or mature 11 or 12 year old um you know i mean i loved reading and things like that but it wasn't like i i thought Hesse was such a revelation or something. But I remember when I read Siddhartha, um, that actually interested me and that had a, a pretty strong impact to the the way he describes it and also his language and how, you know, he has a very interesting way of describing that sitting under the tree and the and and the the kind of the discontent because I think a lot of the German language definitely lends itself to discontent. <laughs> yeah. So I remember that being the first book of Hesse's where I was like, wow, this is really incredible. And that got me onto the you know the trajectory of reading more about the, the entire first of all the entire landscape of that time and then also of course other things about the buddha but then of course years later when i reread um those books then you know it made a lot more then then it had a lot more impact and uh it was quite uh, lovely uh, also the kind of sentiment of my father giving me those books and um, I, I quite till this day uh, enjoy reading one on occasion. Yeah, I, I'd like to come back to that use of the 
German language to express discontent. Um, but maybe you could say it something very briefly for not everyone will know who who was Hermann Hesse and, and what is this book Siddhartha? You don't have to go into great detail, but well, Hermann Hesse was a, a very prolific and and uh, much loved and revered uh, German writer, uh, writing in German and having a really beautiful command of language in German. And Siddhartha is the story of the Buddha and uh, the way he tells it, which is kind of interesting because when was that book written? I'm not quite sure. But he wrote the, the story of the Buddha at a time where in the German literature, uh, that wasn't really happening, right? And it, he was kind of a mainstream author in the sense that he was revered as a, a proper literary um, you know, I don't know what we would call it—a proper, a proper man of, of, of writing and literature—and he wrote about the Buddha in a way that he opened that to a lot of Germans. Nineteen twenty-two. Yeah, it seems well, it was first published. Yeah, he was kind of an interesting guy in the sense I think uh, he he had a Nobel Peace Prize as well. Um, he had like I don't know two or three wives. Uh, he was a painter as well. Um, you know, it was kind of really quite interesting. And uh, there's, of course, uh, you know, a few other books that later on made a lot of sense. Damien, for one, uh, I really, really loved. Yeah. And, you know, around that same time, there was another, I think, quite famous poem, Buddha in der Glory, hmm. uh, by Rilke. 1908 yeah you know and it's directed towards the buddha at the moment of his enlightenment i don't know have you ever heard it shall i read it to you well we have to see about your pronunciation will we <laughs> yes well I, unfortunately uh yes i apparently have poor pronunciation in general and when i do get it right it's sort of northern german in, inspired flavor and you hate that don't you oh yeah well <laughs> It's not your favorite flavor of, of German. Anyway, well, uh, never mind. Well, let's move on. Uh, I asked you originally before we got on this discussion about, you know, your love of books and reading and so on throughout, throughout your life. Uh, I'd asked you, you know, what have you been reading lately? What have you been exposed to lately that's been interesting? Mm. Well, I've been mostly listening to podcasts when I have a moment, which is typically, um, you know, before bed or in the bathtub or uh, in the sauna. Um, that's that's kind of where I've been just uh, listening to some podcast as a means of beefing up on a few different things. So um, I, I'll talk about that a bit because that ties in with also, uh, you know, the not reading on Kindle, but reading paperbacks so that, you know, there isn't light exposure and things. But the two things I have been uh, reading whenever I have a little bit of a moment is this one here, which is such an unbelievably good book. It's called The Garden Awakening by Mary Reynolds. And uh, Mary uh, Reynolds is like an Irish garden and landscape designer. And, um, um, you know, she's kind of, she came to fame by having uh, an incredibly uh, wild garden at the uh, Chelsea Flower Show. Um was it Chelsea? Yeah, I think so. Um, but so she had she she's she's um, you know a garden designer. But what's so really wonderful about this book is that she essentially um, talks about all the different 
uh, garden management practices that are, you know, uh, both derived from Steiner, but also, you know, from um, uh, permaculture and some other uh, older garden culture, um, you know, ideas like the Kugel, that the Hügelgarten uh, and stuff like that, where you're essentially going back and working with nature versus working against nature. And the nice thing about her is that she kind of weaves the entire Celtic sensibility and folklore and also the Celtic knowledge about doing that, right? Because like, for instance, uh, you know, um, Findhorn uh, is, you know, uh, built on Celtic principles. And I mean, Findhorn ve vegetables are famous for being the biggest and most beautiful and most amazing vegetables because um, they're, you know, they're still using those ancient principles, which Steiner drew from as well, um, with biodynamics and, um, you know, permaculture draws from on some other, you know, in some other areas in the way that things are arranged so that the waste of one plant goes into the ground and helps another. Um, so there's the gardening aspect, which I greatly enjoy since, uh, you know, one of the things within the pandemic, of course, has been that I've been home long enough to establish proper gardens and proper vegetable growing and all of that. But the beautiful thing about it is that she ties it in with uh, the body and with the body and the land becoming familiar, which is, of course, something that I'm really interested in both personally and, you know, we do a lot of it within teaching, the sensitizing of the body, not only to another human, which is useful, but also to oneself and to the land. And there's all these practices in there and these considerations on how you walk and how you connect with nature. And um, and it's very it's a very, very beautiful book on many levels. It's very um, practical on the gardening level, but it's also very um, opening and enjoyable on the embodiment and, and merging and combining with nature level. So uh, it's a really, really lovely book and I'm enjoying it. I'm about halfway through and um, it's it's a book that I'm kind of reading slowly because I'm cherishing it so much um, and it's quite nice. So that's, that's one thing that um, is kind of a hearkening back to those days when I read all these things. Um, and also, of course, some of the training I had with uh, my first teacher, who was, you know, an herb woman in the Celtic tradition. And it, it's just really lovely. Could you repeat the title and uh, author, please? It's called The Garden Awakening, Designed to Nurture Our Land and Ourselves by Mary Reynolds. Oh, very interesting. So, yeah. So, yeah. And uh, very, very appreciative of her. And, you know, it's got things like how to, you, do you make fertilizers and fungicides that are natural and things all the way to rituals and creating parts in the garden. It's one thing in there that I really love where she talks about going out in your garden in the dark and sitting in your garden in the dark and not having any light on and, uh, you know, reducing light as much as possible. And she gives instructions on that. And it's just very lovely nice and have you managed to apply any of that to your your garden i, I know you've got sort of a citrus uh, you know orchard i suppose is that the right word a citrus or citrus orchard i'm not sure if it, 
It's like, a, what is it, a murder of crows, an orchard of citrus? <laughs> I'm not sure. You can tell me. But uh, do you, uh, you've got citrus and you've got all sorts of things, vegetable gardener. I don't know, maybe you could say something about your garden and have you, uh, what, you're, what you're growing on the ranch there and if you've applied any of this. Well, interestingly enough, I bought the ranch with a lot of uh, intact, you know, old growth fruit and, and avocado trees and citrus trees. Um, and the people who um, owned the property, owned the property for close to 70 years and had actually bought it from his uncle who had homesteaded it. So um, it's been in the, you know, it's been in the family for a while. And um, before that, it was just... Um, you know, it's, it's an odd, it's an odd area here because it's both the, the ground is very fertile, but it's of course quite dry. So they planted essentially in a way that is not conventional uh, or wasn't conventional at that point, uh, which is quite aligned with permaculture principles in the sense that they essentially planted what is sometimes called a food forest. Um, meaning they planted things fairly close together so that one thing would shade another. And they planted behind a big oak tree so that the citrus wouldn't get burned by the really you know, harsh south-facing um, sun. So I inherited a property that was quite disordered in the sense that you know things weren't properly lined up and all you know planned out they just planted something and then they planted something else and but it actually works in a way that there is an established food forest and all I had to do is um you know plant a few things I lost a bit during the fire obviously so I've been replanting fruit trees mostly stone fruit trees and and things of that nature but I have um you know, pomegranates growing right next to walnuts, growing right next to avocados, growing right next to grapefruit with oranges in between, and then the stone fruit and some almonds. And, you know, so it's this this whole, you know, thicket of, of trees, which um, take quite a bit to manage, but it's it's very beautiful. So um, I've, I had a kind of a renewed appreciation for how the people who I got the land from actually did that. And um, the fact that I don't really mess with it and I don't prune a lot. And, um, you know, I, of course, have animals who fertilize uh, the trees ongoingly, which also really helps. And my pigs essentially eat whatever drops that I don't harvest or that, you know, is already the squirrels eaten or things like that. I have a lot of that going on, which was nice. The thing that I really like about... Um, her in this book also, she talks about something that I'd heard before. Uh, you know, Paul Stamets with all the mushrooms talks about it. Um, and she talks about it. And I had probably heard it from Steiner because I remember it from far, far, far back when. But there's this whole idea that when you walk barefoot in your vegetable gardens or in your gardens in in general, but I do it in my vegetable garden. The mycelium and and the the, the ground and the the you know the mycelium in the ground essentially picks up what nutrients you are lacking or what nutrients you need. And so the working barehanded and barefoot in the garden um, is considered 
giving information to the plants so that the plants can, when you, you know, do it all naturally, the plants can support you. And I don't know if that's true or not scientifically, but it's, I think, a very beautiful and wonderful idea to consider a deeper kind of connection there via the bare feet and the connection to the ground. And uh, I, I like that idea a lot, you know, doesn't, to me makes no difference. Is it scientifically proven or not? I think it's a, it's a way to, to evoke the, the connection and the, the mutual information and the mutual appreciation between uh, a human and the plants that you know, feed me. I am fairly self-sufficient when it comes to fruit and vegetables. I don't really have to buy anything in the summer months. Um, supplement in the winter, but in the summer months, I have excess of everything that I can share. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. And so what else have you got there? Um, the other thing I'm reading, this is kind of a bit obscure. Uh, it's a a book called Sonora and Intimate Geography by David Yetman, who is a, a research social scientist at the University of Arizona Southwest um, in Tucson. I don't know if he's still there. This book is older, I think. Um, and uh, it's an entire book about the Sonoran Desert uh, and its people, 1996. So I'm assuming... Uh, David Yetman has probably become a professor or done something else. But this is a really, really wonderful book because um, he kind of uh, not only describes the landscape and the, the the fauna and the flora, but also the people and uh, the art and the the kind of crafts uh, from the weaving of the uh, the hats to the way the um, the, the buildings are painted and why um, icons, you know, talks about the native peoples, um, you know, the, the different landscapes. And of course, talks about how that's being eroded by, you know, modern culture and things like that and how it uh, transforms. And it's just an incredibly beautiful book. And of course, um, you know, the Sonora Desert goes from the water all the way inland. So it goes from super arid to the ocean and there's some really uh, amazing culture. And I just love this book so much because of the way he brings things to life. And there's also a lot of um, herbal healer uh, stories in there. And there's actually a companion book, which I've just gotten. That's essentially the ethnobotanical uh, account of that area. And uh, that he also wrote um, that I just really enjoy. So as you can see, there's uh, the Virgin of Guadalupe and down here is this kind of offering shrine that's very much looks like, um, you know, what you have in Bhutan with where you burn the, the you know, the shrubbery and stuff like that. So it's, it's a nice book and, and it's, yeah, it's very well done and written and makes me want to go travel immediately. And I'm planning on, you know, going once, once I can. Mm. Sonora by David Yetman. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Published 1996. <laughs> Great. Um, I know you had at least one other thing on <laughs> your list, didn't you? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, we talked, we, we talk about this a lot, obviously, because I've been um, quite enjoying um, podcasts 
not yours, sorry. I'm enjoying your podcast too. <laughs> but aside from your podcast, I've been enjoying podcasts uh, by Andrew Huberman, uh, who is Dr. Andrew Huberman, um, who is a professor uh, at Stanford and who has um, a podcast that's gotten, I think, very popular. I remember in the very, very beginning when I first um, came upon it, it wasn't nearly as uh, popular as it's now. You liked Dr. Huberman before. Doc it was cool to like Dr. Huberman. Is what you're saying. <laughs> I listened to Dr. Huberman before it was, yeah, before it was cool to, to listen to Dr. Huberman. Um, <laughs> well, I think it was probably always cool, but, um, you know, I, I've seen the thing explode and rightly so, because it's quite, um, it's quite well done in the sense that he's able to really collect um, information and impart it in a way that allows people to understand what's happening uh, without having to read research papers and also kind of, uh, you know, compile it in a way that it's really useful for anything you want to optimize. And there's a, a few strains that I really enjoy. There's some things, you know, I'm just not personally that interested in, but there's a few strains I really enjoy. And one of them is kind of the optimizing of the body for, um, you know, for health and vitality and well-being via the circadian rhythm. And that's been hugely helpful to me in the time that we've been teaching, you know, um, online where essentially... Uh, you know, I have to get up really, really early. In the first year of the pandemic, I'd get up at 12.30 a.m. and get and start teaching at 1 a.m., teach till 6 in the morning or 7 in the morning, then sleep a few hours and then teach again from 1 in the even, afternoon till 7 in the evening. And so that really messed up my sleep cycles. Really, I mean, substantially messed up my sleep cycles. Well, and the reason we did that, of course, was that we wanted to uh, support the people that we usually saw live in person in Europe and the UK and Australia uh, in their time zones, because I wanted to make sure that in the middle of the, or the beginning of the pandemic, where things were really scary, right, and we didn't know what was happening and everybody was uh, isolated and locked in, that there was a kind of a through line in the material and in the teaching and also in the support, both um, us with them and them with each other, right? And so um, all our established groups were just kept at the time that they were when we used to go to Amsterdam or when we used to go to Melbourne. And that of course meant um, for you staying up really late and for me getting up really early. And uh, in the context of the getting up really early, um, I really messed up my circadian rhythms and my sleep and it over the years, because first it was like, well, this is going to last a few months and then we'll be back on the road. And then it didn't take a few months. And then in the next year, we still had to do online and then we moved it back to me getting up at three instead of 1230, but nonetheless. And so saying all of that, um, I came about a upon uh, Dr. Huberman before then, but then he brought this one episode out that was all about light and uh, optimizing light and sleep. And he was talking about shift workers and all of that. And it was kind of an interesting thing because I listened to it and it um, was on one end very affirming and 
the other end scared the living daylights out of me, pun intended, you know, because there's such bad um, health risks in, in that kind of, you know, blue light exposure at night and not sleeping properly or getting up really early and getting bright lights in light in my eyes and stuff like that. So I've been really immersing into those aspects on how do you use light? When do you use light? How do you use sunlight? Um, how do you use the light when the sun goes down? Um, what are the things you can do to guard against, you know, those kind of detrimental effects? And then in combination with that um, cold exposure and hot exposure, and that's been kind of uh, the thing that I'm uh, listening to and beefing up on all around so that I can somewhat optimize uh, the situation, even though it's not optimal, of course, still uh, with the getting up early and, and, and all of that. So I've been really enjoying that. And then the second um, thing that he's just started doing that I also really uh, appreciate is um, because of course, you know, my background is, is uh, trauma therapy and psychology and, and um, you know, the more clinical applications um, of that was where I started in my, you know, 30s, tw late 20s and 30s. So he now has a whole bunch of podcasts out on things like OCD. Uh, so the more psychiatric aspects, trauma, trauma based on research, not trauma based on, um, you know, everybody being trauma informed now, but really how does it work in the brain? What happens? What doesn't happen? How do you work with it? Um, with supplements? How do you work with it behaviorally? What do you need to understand? So he's very good, even though, you know, it's, it's not as somatically driven as I would like it to be. Um, it's, it's very good from a science and neuroscience perspective to kind of give a bit of underpinning, um, you know, for people who don't have that underpinning. Uh, it's very easy to understand. So I'm, I'm quite, um, you know, quite appreciative of him doing that because it's so, uh, you know, so precise and, and so applicable. Yeah, you sent me um, over the last weeks, you sent me his episode on depression. He had one on ADHD, recently bipolar. Uh, very interesting. And they're quite long. They're like two, three hours of sort of, and sometimes he'll interview experts. Now, who was that expert that you thought was really, really good um, that he interviewed? What was oh, that? Dr. Conti, who is really an incredible trauma, you know, trauma specialist, psychiatrist, trauma specialist, who um, I had read uh, things about or, or from before, I should say, um, and who's just really, really good and clear and, um, you know, precise without going too far into uh, everybody needs to be medicated or, uh, you know, everybody needs to whatever. Yeah, no, whatever it is, there's these like far uh, divergent aspects of how people think trauma should be treated. Um, so that was really good. And then the other one I really liked was uh, uh, Dr. Samea Hatar, Hatar, I think, Hatar. Sorry, but I'm bastardizing his name. Um, so Dr. Samea Hatar uh, was another one that was uh, really good, uh, who is, you know, working with circadian rhythms and how that actually creates biological changes in the body. And there was some really uh, good and useful things in there. There's lots of really good ones that, that I'm enjoying, but uh, there's a few highlights. <laughs> um, so what did you, I'm curious what you took from, you know, you were 
and still do sometimes when, when we're teaching, which is often. Uh, basically, it's a sort of shift work pattern for you, but it's a shift work pattern that occurs for a few days and then doesn't occur for another week or so. And so it's, you know, you're in an interesting position getting up and going to bed at these strange times. Um, so what have you, what are the key takeaways that you've implemented from particularly your research into how to optimize sleep and circadian rhythms, et cetera, and light exposure and so on? Yeah, I think the things, you know, that were both very useful and also quite depressing <laughs> for me was that I, that I realized that in the context of uh, doing this almost every weekend, right, there were like stretches of time where we taught every single weekend, uh, that I couldn't um, have a different schedule during the week than I had on the weekend. And the reason I'm saying that's very depressing was that I had to go to bed very, very early, way earlier than I usually would. I, I tend towards wanting to go to bed really late because I enjoy the evening hours and I enjoy having that stretch of time at the end of the day to do creative things and read and hang out. So I, I essentially learned that the only way that I could work with my rhythm was to actually have regular sleep and wake hours, which you always here but I never believed <laughs> so you know <laughs> there's always these things where you think yeah well whatever right have a sleep routine but I actually created a sleep routine and I went down at the same time regardless if I could sleep or not and I also um, understood finally why you have to wind down because it all has to do with light exposure right and getting light exposure so that it works with your biology and not against your biology. Meaning if you want to um, have proper sleep, you can't have bright lights, you know, at least the hour before you sleep, but probably before then even, um, because it, it sets different mechanisms in uh, motion in your brain. And so um, I kind of had to learn how to really, you know, diminish or, or reduce uh, light exposure in the evening, I'd get like late, uh, late afternoon sunlight, which signals to the brain, the sun's going down because it's got a different color. And then, uh, you know, all kinds of chemistry starts working towards winding you down. And then of course, uh, there's the whole thing with melatonin, um, finally kicking in and getting you into sleep. And then, in the morning, the first thing up was a bright light exposure. And I still do that every morning. I have this tea table that points right out towards the sunrise and I open the windows. So you're also supposed to really get the full spectrum of light, not the filtered light from energy efficient windows, for instance. So I open the windows and I sit there and I actually have my first cup of tea as the sun goes up or even before the sun goes up. And then I just sit there and have 10, 15 minutes of bright sunlight, obviously not looking into it, but you know, just bright sunlight on me. <laughs> <laughs> obviously not looking into it right but um, um th that's been super super helpful in setting my entire body up where you know the thing that needs to happen which is i get fully awake and then uh, you know and that sets into effect the you know the going down at the end of the day and the same now you know now that um I'm here and with and, and when I'm teaching, I have the doors open towards the sunrise. So even if I have to teach, I get bright sunlight 
as the sun comes up. And that's been super useful. And then the other thing um, that's uh, very instrumental there is that um, if you get bright light two hours, more than two hours before you wake up, then it resets you in a way that you can't go to bed early the next evening and so on and so on. And that was the hardest thing because I would certainly wake up two hours before I would normally get up and then, you know, have to go to bed again at seven in the evening to wake up at midnight or one o'clock and couldn't. And so I realized that I had to essentially reset my entire system such that I could have my first ring light exposure two hours before I would usually get up. And uh, that's made a huge difference in the way my body feels. It's a bit pesky, but it, it certainly had really positive health effects now that I figured that one out and I can do it. Yeah, that's very interesting. One of the key points that you're bringing up there is the way you wake up or conditions that occur around your waking up influences actually hormone releases and so on uh, at nighttime, all that time later in the day. Yeah, that's super interesting. So I've started, to, yeah. you know, based on your enthusiasm for this, I've started to integrate a bit of that. Uh, mainly when I get up in the morning, um, I get up and the first thing, of course, I do is make get the coffee going and that that'll take five or six minutes when that's on the on the hob. And so then I just turn around and of course I live on a boat. So I just open my side hatch, uh, which is a sort of waist high side hatch window that opens up and I'll, I'll just kind of hang out, how to hang out of that. <laughs> you know, I mean, when I say hang out of it, I mean, I lean out of it and, you know, <laughs> blink into the sun um, yeah. or blink into the op open air as the coffee is uh, bubbling in the background. So, you know, one can see me hanging out of my side hatch. Of course, as a redhead person, uh, 10 to 15 minutes of, of uh, daylight exposure is about my weekly allowance. So, you know, I have to be careful. But uh, I, so I've, I've, even I have begun to uh, implement some of these, <laughs> some of these ideas, thanks to your, um, your reporting back about it. Very cool. Yeah, it's really made a big difference in in my sleep cycles as well and in the depth of sleep. And, you know, for a while there, I would check. I no longer do that because it really freaks me out. I would keep my Fitbit on. I have one of those advanced Fitbits and check on my sleep. And it was like really disastrous there for a while with constant waking up because of the disruption of those sleep cycles. And then when I had it somewhat dialed in, I stopped because it's just, you know, I mean... Uh, it's just not not useful to check how often I woke up in the middle of the night and stuff, but I'm definitely sleeping a lot better and I have a lot more energy in the day and, um, you know, just from that. And then there's other things to do with it, like cold exposure and hot exposure and things like that, that keep me at least on the straight and narrow while, you know, those early morning teaching hours are still happening. Okay, very briefly, what is the cold and hot exposure you're doing? Uh, well, so the, the things I do is I do cold exposure, daily cold exposure, just enough so that, um, you know, I get the benefits, but not so much that I get a cold tolerance. Because the problem is when you get cold adapted, all those massive benefits of those cold, you know, of the cold exposure kind of diminish some. There's other ones, but from what I want, which is the strengthening of the immune system, and the kind of revving of the metabolism early in the day, um, you want short, you know, short cold exposure. And so I do that. Um, I have this 
this kind of glorified feed trough with cold water in it that I dump a bag of ice in and then I dip in there for like five minutes first thing when I when I'm done with all my morning stuff. But you do a full on cold dip, not not just a cold shower. No, no, I, I can't do a cold shower. It's just too, it's too, just cold. too horrible. Uh, <laughs> it's just not that, you know, it's much, much nicer to actually, I like that uh, going into the cold and that, whoa, right? And it's just so, it's also a, a total pattern interrupt, right? Or like a thought interrupt. So often I do it after I've done my first round of email and I'm all like, I go and, and I have to dip. I do it like three, four times a week where I where I just sit and I sit for a couple of minutes and then I get out and then I cover the thing back up. And, uh, you know, then that's that's that. And then um, when I can, uh, I do uh, sauna in the evening as the last thing before I go to bed. And I just stay in there for however long I feel like it, but the minimum of 20 minutes. But often, you know, I get get into a podcast and just listen to half a podcast or something while hanging out in the sauna. And I go, then I go out and I have a garden hose and I, or, or if the ice is still somewhat intact, which it typically isn't because it's crazy hot right now, I might just take another cold dip and, um, you know, go cold, hot, cold, hot, and then I go to bed. And that's for optimal immune function. And uh, and what else is that for? Well, hot, you know, I mean, I grew up with sauna. My dad had a sauna in his basement. My grandfather had a sauna, right? It was a, in, in, off, in many parts of Europe, sauna is considered one of the main things you do to keep yourself from getting uh, colds or flus or, you know, keep your immune system going and you scrub your skin in the sauna and the whole thing. So I kind of use it as a means of, of, um, you know, sweating. Uh, it's, it's good for cardiovascular health. It's good for your skin. I have a, you know, I had a sauna built out of the scrap wood of my construction wood. So it's this little barrel and I have red lights in it. So I get like red lights while I'm in the sauna, which is good for the skin and for your, I guess, for your eyes now as well, I heard. Um, so there's all of those kind of things. But it's also just really nice because it keeps me from, um, you know, just watching something and and zoning out and then getting the light again and blah, blah, blah. So it's just been really a good routine while I'm home um, as a means of also connecting back with my body in the evening. And sometimes I do a little bit of nonlinear when it gets too hot, I go on the ground and do a little bit of nonlinear in the sauna. And, uh, you know, I drink lots of water in there and it's just a, it's just a nice way to end my day. Very cool. Well, speaking of nonlinear, we should mention that actually we're soon to be running a nonlinear teacher training a program we've done now for some years, graduating many, many teachers of nonlinear movement method uh, all over the world. And that the early bird ends quite soon. Actually, of course, if you're if you're listening to this many years in the future, well, maybe we have another one coming up. So you should check uh, <laughs> www go to the workshops tab and you'll find everything about the about it there will also of course of course include a link uh, below is there anything you want to say about that upcoming teacher training we've we've tweaked it a lot yeah we've tweaked it a lot and i think why it's worth mentioning in the in the um you know context of 
optimizing health and well-being. Um, there's an optimizing of mental health, of course, that happens in all the things that I'm talking about um, as well, because, you know, it certainly was rough for everyone during the pandemic and still considering, um, you know, everything that's going on, um, optimal physical things of optimal optimizing physical um, you know, procedures is one aspect and then nonlinear kind of the bridge between the body and the emotion. And of course, also the mind um, has been super useful uh, for both me, you know, as the creator of that, uh, but also in being able to give it to people in sessions and teaching people how to do it for other people, because it is one of those modalities that creates that feeling into the inter inner landscape and that allows for, um, you know, kind of an all over wellness. And that's something I'm really happy about that we were able to create not only for people to do in the pandemic at home as an hour session, but also to make it so people can learn how to teach it and then teach it to their communities and friends and patients and clients. So uh, yeah, we've tweaked it a lot. It's really comprehensive, comes with a huge portal of information, videos, the lectures, um, adjunct material, playlists, you name it. Um, so we have this online support and it's live online training. It's a real immersion in the method. You do a lot of, of practicing off the method and people really value that as well as of course, we, we, we train you how to teach it. And one of the perks of these these trainings is if you've attended one, you can audit future ones. You can come back and attend future ones at no charge. Uh, you know, we, we do that so that our, our teachers out there are always able to access a refresher, if you like. Uh, but it's turned out that a lot of people have done that and, and will audit the training uh, just because of that immersion aspect, just because of the, uh, the depth of practice that goes on in that training. So it's really cool. And if, you, you know, if, you're, if you're interested in that, do check it out, uh, michaelabohm.com or send us an email at workshops at michaelabohm.com. Well, this has been super fascinating. Thank you, Michaela, for sharing what you've been reading. And Thank see you next you. time. <laughs> see you next time. <laughs>